This week's episode of Pod Cemetery is brought to you by The Emptiness of Existence. The Emptiness of Existence, making spoiled brats jaded, disgusted, and just plain bored since 1924. It's hard. Really. Hello, my name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. And this is Pod Cemetery, where we dissect horror movies like the rotting corpses that they are. This week, a double feature. The late night. Funny Games from 1997 and Funny Games from 2007. They are on either side of our classic and modern divide, miraculously. Now, this episode is going to be a little different, probably even a little shorter, depending on how long we talk about these. We're used to doing silent films where I have no clips. We're used to doing foreign films where I can't grab any clips. And we're used to doing movies that have similar plots in a double feature. What we are not used to doing (laughs) is a double feature where one is in a foreign language and the other is in English. And they share the same exact plot. Yep. Everything's the same. There are very minor differences. Now, that being said, there are a lot of them. But they're so teeny tiny that if you were just a regular casual viewer. It would be literally the same movie. It would be very difficult to figure out what the differences are. But we were watching with a fine tooth comb because we were prepared for it. Yes. So we're going to be doing this in one maybe longer than usual segment, but probably shorter than our normal double segment episode. So we'll find out at the end of this exactly how long this episode is. But before we get there, Kelsey. Yes. Trivial Pursuit Horror Edition. In 1945's Dead of Night. Yes. How many separate directors were there? Five. Four. Damn. Damn. Four directors. If you don't know, Dead of Night was an anthology movie where people told different stories about the interactions that they had with the supernatural. (laughs) And it's an interesting one. I liked it. For 1945, it was pretty impressive. It was pretty impressive for 1945. That is true. Kelsey. Yes. In Trick or Treat 2007, what is the name of the childlike character that appears in all segments? Is it Sam? It is Sam. Short for Sam Hain. That's what I figured. That's what I thought. Which, if you listen to our episode on Halloween 2, <laughs> they mention is the ancient druidic uh, <laughs> night where they worship, uh, I guess, the spirit of Samhain. Yeah. Yeah, it's, ugh, God, we're going to get into druids eventually in Halloween, man. <laughs> anyway, it's where Halloween comes from. Yes. So since we're only doing one segment, Kelsey, you want to just give me another question? Okay. What is the country of origin of mm. the titular bird in 1970s, the bird with the crystal plumage? Is it America? Serbia. Not in a million years, but I've gotten that one. 
Nope. <laughs> but do you know what country the actual movie took place in? Yeah, it's, um, oh my god, I can't decide. I mean, I don't have it written in front of me, but I think it's Germany, right? I, I was going to say France or Italy. I was thinking it was Germany or France, so maybe it's France. But I may be thinking of... But it's a it's a Argento film, so it would make sense if it was Italy. Italy, yeah. Mm-hmm. Someone is listening to us and calling us scream. This is one of those things where you just scream at the screen. <laughs> but the point of these questions is just to see what we can recall, <laughs> not what we've researched. Yes. All right. Moving on. Aren't you going to ask me your last question? I was going to ask you my last question. Kelsey, in Happy Death Day 2017, what poison dessert does Lori try to give Teresa Gelbman? A cupcake. That is correct. We're Kappas. We don't eat cupcakes. <laughs> I'm so happy she's going to be in the new one. We didn't talk about the trailer in that episode that we, we saw before not. Halloween. We did not. You should have seen Kelsey's face light up <laughs> when that girl came on screen. I can't remember her name. <laughs> the bitchy sister from the sorority. As soon as I saw she was in it, I was like, damn it, now I have to see it. <laughs> they are leaning hard into the comedy angle in Which this Which they should. Yeah. But before it was kind of comedy, kind of horror. Yeah. And it's almost like they didn't know which direction they wanted to go. And... This one, unless this is just the comedy trailer and they'll do another horror trailer right. and then the movie itself is still a mix of the two, mm -hmm. it feels like they are leaning hard into comedy. Mm -hmm. She's all wacky now that she's old hat at this. Yeah, and she has to go all the way back to day yes, one. It which takes just, her back to the original day. Which just looks like it would frustrate the fuck out of me. Right. That's kind of the one, like, it's an interesting concept for sure, but, like, we saw her go through the day so many times and make it perfect, and, They like, even showed us again that she has to go through all this shit, and I'm just like, okay. What's the gimmick in this one, though? Okay, so they bring in the roommate of the dude. They bring in his He's roommate into everything. He's the one that has to relive his day over and over again. Yes, but she's, like, the one who knows everything. But she does, too. Doesn't she bring her knowledge, too? I don't know. But it's because he dies or something. I don't know. We watched the trailer. It was a couple weeks ago now. <laughs> but it was it was mixed. It was some things where I was like, dope. And then other things where I was like, uh. <laughs> we'll see. But Time we will tell. We said in that episode it was going to be called Happy Death Day to You. Yes. And that is, in fact, what it's called. Yes. All right, Kelsey. Let's get into both of our movies. Funny Games. From 2007 and 1997, written and directed by Michael Haneke, starring in the 1997 version Suzanne Lothar, Ulrich Muha, and Arno Frisch, and in the 2007 version, Naomi Watts, Tim Roth, and Michael Pitt. Kelsey, mm. what is Funny Games about? It is about a upper middle class or lower upper class family who is going to stay in their vacation home. And On a lake. Yes. And unfortunately for them, two early 20s guys, or would you guess they're high school? I don't know. I think they're supposed to be in their early, early 20s. Early 20s or late teens. They're yeah. in college. Oh, no. We never find out. No, we do find out that the younger one is like a senior or something like that in high school. That's what he says, but we, right, we, we learn we that we can't him. trust we can't anything trust that comes yeah, out of their mouths. Uh -huh. But they have decided that they want to play some funny games with these people 
who... I.e. psychological torture. <laughs> yes. Who will not find them as funny and enjoyable as the two boys will. <laughs> nope. Kelsey, should people watch either of these movies? This is a little too close to torture porn for me. It's um, close. It's close. It's, it's not a psychological exactly. equivalent. Yes. But you're not seeing as much actual like gore and gruesomeness on screen as you would in a normal torture porn. Right. But the psychological element is definitely there. Yeah. So this isn't exactly the type of movie that we typically do for the show. It was a request. It was a request. Uh, thank you, Peter. Thank you, Peter. Um, Maybe. <laughs> I think it is an extremely interesting movie. Yeah, it's very well done. It's very well done. I wouldn't immediately recommend it, though, because it is hard to watch. And number one, don't watch both. Oh, there's it's no pointless. reason to. It's point we did it, and it's pointless. Yeah, and we're going to tell you all the teeny tiny differences anyway, so I, don't bother seeing both. Would I recommend it? I... It depends on what you're into. I know that you could say that about every movie, but this really in particular. It's not my typical choice of horror. You know, I like slashers. I love ghost stories. This is neither of those. Of course, Michael Haneke would say as soon as you can distill something down to one thing, then it, it, it it's – I forget the actual quote. I'll bring it up in our discussion, but – You've ruined it, and he doesn't like that people consider this a horror movie. For that reason, though. Not because it's not a horror movie, but because he dislikes labels. God, what a pretentious douchebag this guy is. <laughs> he made a good movie. He did. Twice. <laughs> the reason he made it twice is because he wanted to make it in America. But because it was a very low-budget film, logistically, they just couldn't make it happen. Yeah, I saw that the executive producer for the American one was Naomi Watts. Yeah, like it it took effort from people to get this made in America, but mainly because Michael Haneke wanted to do it. He wanted to do it in America, and then but he couldn't do it the first time around, and he just decided he wanted to do it again, and he wanted to do it again like shot for shot. There's one element that Michael Pitt says that he let him change because it was it was better, but Otherwise, like, they weren't allowed to make any changes. The biggest thing I noticed when I was watching the Austrian version, I was just like, oh, that that definitely has to get changed when it's in America. Yeah. Because we don't use that phrase. We don't use that terminology. Yeah. Uh -huh. So, and I definitely noticed it when we watched the American version. And also, because he had waited so long, there's a big difference of how we use phones now. And so that scene right. is a little different as well. Yeah. I mean, this is the year that the iPhone came out. Mm -hmm. So... Things were very different by this Right. Your period. standard push-button phones were pretty far along mm -hmm. in what they would eventually become. They've almost hit their absolute most advanced form. Whereas in 1997, having a cell phone was like a rich people thing. Yes. So, anyway. God, watch it or don't. Don't watch both. Watch it if you're into a psychological drama that might just just you'll be exhausted. Yes, it will exhaust. Psychologically, you. it's torture, especially to watch it twice. <laughs> yes, so don't don't watch both of them. <laughs> and when we get back, we will talk about both 1997 and 2007's Funny Games. Mm -hmm. 
What is it, honey? There's someone here. Could you please leave? Right now. Mr. Farber. What? Have a seat. Please. I'm Paul. It's easier when things are polite. Okay, let's play a game. You bet that you'll be alive tomorrow at 9 o'clock, and we bet that you'll be dead. Let's make a deal. That's awesome, really. You shouldn't have done that, Anne. So much stress for politeness' sake. <clears throat> Be safe all through the night. <laughs> it's playtime again. Kelsey, what happens in funny games? Can you get us started? We start with the family uh, driving to their vacation home. And to give us a very good idea of who these people are, they are listening to um, classical music and they are. No, it's like. Operas. Yes, and they are challenging each other to think of the composer and the title. And the opera, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's it's just showing us these are upper class people. Very bougie. Yes. Not to say that they're bad people, um, but they are delightfully unaware of the dangers of the world. Yeah. And then immediately we get slapped with hard metal. Yeah, right over way. the title. Yes. While stuff is still happening on screen, but just very, very heavy metal. And this is the one time in the entire movie that has non-diegetic music. The rest of the movie is all diegetic, even when the song comes back later on in the movie. But every other time, it's somebody turns on a radio, somebody turns on a TV, they're listening to the operas in the car, everything else. And, of course, over the opening credits, at least in the American version, I don't remember for the Austrian version, it's just dead silence. How profound. I feel like Chris is going to hate on this movie. I'm going to hate on Michael Haneke. I don't, I'm not, I listen, I don't He's hate this movie. He's a good filmmaker. I don't hate this movie. I just think <laughs> that Michael Haneke is a pretentious fuckhead. And I was, <laughs> I was thinking about this and I was diving deep into the analysis of this movie and like the differences between reality and fiction and the blurred line between the two and what it says about audiences and what they're looking for. And like, you know, I was really analyzing this film. And at a certain point I was just like, you know what? No, no, fuck this guy. And I will tell you why when we get to our conversations later, where I was just like, no, he, this is exactly what he wants. Yeah. 
Yes. He wants you. I don't know that that's a bad thing. I, I'll get into it okay. later on. <laughs> so they are almost at their vacation house and they stop because they see the family that has the, the house next door outside from what they can tell playing golf with two young men who are wearing almost all white. almost all white. Um, the younger one is wearing like black shorts, navy blue or something like that. Yeah, but otherwise they're wearing all white. In fact, they have white gloves on. You know, and they stop and they're trying to have a conversation with them, like, "Oh, about you, golf later. Are you, yeah. You're going to come over to, later to help us with our boat. You're going to come over tomorrow to play golf." And the family is acting very strangely. And our main family notice that their daughter is not out there with them. Yeah. Which is all very strange. And they're like, and who were those two guys they were with? Yeah. Right? Now, okay. This is, this is, okay. I understand that I am very different from most people <laughs> because I've seen so much horror in my life that... I would automatically be like, we need to get the fuck out of Dodge. Right. I I would I would probably ask them, who is this? What are you doing? Why are you acting this way? And depending on what their responses are, I might get involved or call the cops. And then just later to check on them. Later or... this becomes tenfold. Yes. But I understand. I'm that not. other people behave differently. Yes. They have different priorities and they have different instincts in dangerous situations. Yes. Um, they get to the house. They're bringing in all the stuff and they have a dog. And the dog is constantly ignored. If the dog whimpers or if the dog barks, they just yell at it to stop. So they're mm -hmm. telling us from the get-go, this family is not going to pay attention if their dog is upset about something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which, that just goes to show everybody, if you have a dog, listen. Yeah. What is it trying to tell you? We see golf clubs brought in, which will become a thing later. She's bringing in the groceries, which is why she's in the kitchen doing stuff. So, George or Georg. Um, listen, we might interchange between the names, but it's really, really simple. There's Anna and Anne is the woman. Georg why, why or George. I don't know. Anna is a perfectly acceptable American But I think name. it's a little more European, and maybe if you're European, you might think that, oh, if I Americanize it, it's just Anne. My best friend in preschool was Anna. I had a best friend in high school whose name was Anna. Yeah, no, I get it. But I, if somebody who's from Europe might have might think of Anne as an American name, I don't know. Uh, and there's Georgie in the American version or Georg Jr. in the Austrian version. And did you look up? They they So – in America, it's George and Georgie. Mm -hmm. There in Austria, apparently it is Georg and Schorschi. Oh, yeah. I no, looked I didn't that up that. Yeah. Uh, and I was very interested. That's very strange to uh -huh. me. But, I mean, that's cool, but it's, it's weird. <laughs> and then, but basically all the names are virtually the same. So apologies if you get a little bit confused if one of the names change, like their neighbors. We're stupid Americans and we like things simple. We yeah. like to call it George and Anne. <laughs> the neighbor's name is, is Fred. I think it's Fred in the 97 version as well. But just if there is a difference, I apologize. Yeah. So George and Georgie are setting up the sailboat at the dock 
And we keep seeing this knife that Georgie has. Yes. And meanwhile, Anne or Anna is in the kitchen and she is making dinner. Yeah. She has all this steak that she has to make. So she's kind of, she's doing something. She's in the middle of something. So she's Uh not really paying attention. And she's on the phone with a friend of hers. And she's like, hey, come up here for the weekend. We can make dinner. We can hang out. We can go sailing. You know, they're out there doing, setting up the sailboat right now. Which, is this supposed to be the family that they see later? Because I don't think it is. No, it's not. So It's a family we never see. So what that tells us, because those friends are going to come over. Maybe. Probably. No, no. She tells them they're coming over, and he's like, I don't think they are. But they might be. Right. And that would mean the jig was up for these right, people. Right, but, but on the phone call, you can hear her. She's trying to convince this person to come. They're, they're being hesitant. Yeah. The family next door, or the father next door, does come over. And again, he's acting very strangely. And he brings one of those guys with him. And they're going to help... Set put the, boat put the sailboat in the water, like launch the sailboat, and then George and Georgie are going to set up the actual sails. Yeah. But again, like, it's just, it's so frustrating for me to see these people. The dog is barking way. its head off, and Fred's like, oh, this is my boss's son. He's joining us. Oh, did you get here last week? And then Fred says no, and Paul say different things. So Fred says yes, and Paul says no. And then Fred has to quickly come up with, well, we came on Friday. He didn't come till the weekend. Which, I like, that's fine, but I'll get there. I'll get there. And again, it's really, listeners, it is so difficult for me to watch this kind of stuff and not just want to rip my hair out. Yeah. Because it's just like But it's not it's not unbelievable that people behave this way. I guess. And your average person would probably behave this way. I guess. If somebody introduced somebody to you and is like, this is this person, why wouldn't you, under normal circumstances, believe them? Look. And people want to rationalize things like this. They <laughs> want it they want things to be normal, so they force them into normality. Even if they're a little weird, they're they just be like, oh, that was weird. Georgie even notices, he says, why was Uncle Fred acting so weird? Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's... I just, look, if if somebody came up to me with a gun and was like, give me all your money, I would probably give the money. But the second that they say anything else, I'm going to say, you're going to kill me no matter what. So you better do it now. I'm not going to go along with anything else. That's a hard line that Kelsey has. Yes. I will, I refuse... To be used for someone's entertainment before they kill me. Yeah. You're going to kill me right away. And You're not going to get anything out of that's me. That's literally what these young men are doing. Mm-hmm. Okay. She is in the kitchen, like we said, doing all this stuff, and in walks the younger of the two boys. Peter. I guess they're young men. It's just weird to call them men because they're definitely supposed to be younger. Yeah. But young men. So there's Peter and Paul. We never get their real names. They call each other Tom and Jerry. Which is so cute. <laughs> Beavis and Butthead. Yes. Uh, fatty. Yes. Paul will call Peter Fatty occasionally. Yes. Uh, but we never get their real name. So he comes in. He's like, oh, we need eggs. We need four eggs. And she's <laughs> like, why do you need four? And he's like, oh, I don't know. And I mean, she just accepts that, which I guess I probably would too. But at the same time, 
I'd be like, that's a lot of eggs. So this is the part of the movie that's probably going to take the longest to explain because it really what it what the scene does is it ramps up the tension and frustration in the characters involved. But Peter stays pretty even tempered the entire time. And that almost makes it more frustrating. And they do that the entire film. And when I was prepping Chris to see this, my my first thing was, this movie is really strange in that you despise these people. You, you think they're awful human beings. But they're charming as fuck. But they're charming and a weird part of you is almost okay with them getting away with it. Mm-hmm. And that's fascinating to me. That is, like I said, the mark of a good filmmaker. So, but you notice that, first of all, the normies are rationalizing everything to make it make sense. And when Georgie, the younger one, is asking questions, why was Fred acting so weird? Where's the girl? Like, George Sr. is explaining things away because when your kid asks you questions like that, you're, you try to rationalize for him as a parent and you come up with explanations and that's what they do throughout the whole setup of everything. Mm-hmm. And then Peter and Paul rationalize every one of their actions and even though they're absolutely ridiculous, the logic makes sense. Mm-hmm. And so that rationalization is a key theme of this movie. Yeah. So she can pretty much automatically tell that they're lying because she's like, how did you get to the house? And he's like, oh, I came up through the lake. You're not wet. Oh, I came through a hole in the fence. What? Yeah, Fred told me about it. Yeah, but she just kind of, eh, whatever, I must be wrong. Rationalization. Yeah, he drops all the eggs. She laughs it off and goes to give him four more. And it's around this time when he becomes kind of insistent, like, you're going to have four more. What's the problem with giving me four? Yeah, you'll still have four left. That was a full carton of 12. And you can tell that she's like, okay, at this point, I don't like you anymore. I was willing to be nice to you and give you these eggs. And I I didn't even get angry that you spilled them all over my floor. Now you're becoming insistent that I give you more. I don't like this. And it's at this point, too, that what ramps up her frustration, he accidentally knocks the cell phone into the sink full of water. Yes. And she freaks out, but now the cell phone's not working. And so now she's frustrated at that, but trying to be polite. Politeness, another key theme of this movie. Because Peter and Paul, throughout all the violence and all the torture, remain polite. Yes. Which I think is a commentary on the value of politeness, how people overvalue politeness, how what you're actually doing could be masked by politeness and yes. people feel like you're supposed to let it go, but politeness can't cover for actual behavior. Yes. It's interesting that you say that because what I try to teach my kids is people will respond to politeness, mm-hmm. but I think that has to do, I don't know. You can tell me, do you think that's more of a, of a um, commentary on like today versus 1997 or do you think it's a commentary on Austria versus America because here I have to teach my students no you want to be polite if you want to get far in life if you want people to do things for you you got to be polite 
So it doesn't matter what your intention is. You won't get anything done if you're rude. I don't think the politeness is a regional thing between Austria. I don't think that commentary is a regional consideration. What I think is a regional consideration is the consumerism. Michael Haneke thinks that Americans are fat and lazy and gore hungry. So do a lot of people. <laughs> I know. I know. But that's what he thinks of us. And that's what he thinks of most of the people listening to this episode right now. There are people like, hey, I see you, South Africa. I see you, uh, Korea. Like, we got people all over the world listening to this show. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, it's Americans and some Canadians. And the UK. And the UK. Hey, what's up, UK? Um, I think it's because we speak English. More than <laughs> yeah, you know, totally. Else. <laughs> totally. Totally. But the overarching theme of this movie is the perversity of the American hunger. That's why he, when he had the opportunity, he made the same movie over again, exactly the same, but in America, because that's the movie he really wanted to make because he wanted to comment on American consumer nature. But if his, I mean, this is such a small thing, but if he's trying to talk about us as fat slobs, why not pick fat people? Because it's not about Anna and Fred and George and Georgie. It's about us, the people watching. He made it in English again with Americans, even though neither Tim Roth nor Naomi Watts are American. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> because the audience watching and who are literally a part of the movie. You know how people say sometimes that, oh, the town, the, the location, New York or Paris, it's another character in the movie. In this instance, the audience is literally another character in the movie. The But my other issue with that, so the, the main bad guy. Paul. Paul. He will break the fourth wall a few times in the movie, which I love. I think that's yeah. such, such, so good. Such good writing. He looks at us and says, you're on their side, aren't you? So in that way, Haneke is saying that we want them to survive. But on the, it's funny because in the Austrian version, it's like, who are you going to pick? Who, who, whose side are you going to bet? But it's about the bet. Yes. You want them to live, but you want to see them suffer. That's why you're here. That's why you're watching this movie. Michael Haneke does not care about the characters in this movie. He does not care about the content of this movie. He wants to make this movie so people will see it and then he will laugh at them. That's his objective. Or he wants us to see it and learn something. Yeah, because he thinks we're idiots who need this lesson. This lesson that hurting people is bad and that... Your hunger, your hunger for violence in cinema, like the fact that we we think that, especially as horror movie fans that we are, the fact that that he's equating who you are as a person and what lessons you need to learn with the type of movies that you want to watch and what you want to see on the screen. And he hates you for it. He audience, he hates you. What makes you think that? Is there a quote? <laughs> 
Because it's so fucking smug. The whole thing is so fucking smug. I think you're just angry. I don't necessarily think it's smugness. I think he sees it as a problem. I think he he looks at people who watches movies like this. And again, you got to remember, babe, this isn't our typical type of horror movie. I mean, I guess you could say that he feels that same way about slashers, which we love. But I think he's more talking about torture porn people and we don't like torture porn but haneke states this is from mm, i think this might be from wicked horror i'm not entirely certain he there are a couple articles about this this is from wicked horror haneke states the entire film was not intended to be a horror film Mm -hmm. he says he wanted to make a message about violence in the media Mm -hmm. by making an incredibly violent but otherwise pointless movie his intention was to make a pointless movie this is why i refuse to analyze it any deeper than this He wants you to analyze it, and then he wants to laugh at you because he intentionally thinks there's no fucking point to his own movie that he made twice. (laughs) So you people out there analyzing it to the end of the earth, he's telling you the movie's pointless. Stop analyzing it. Anyway. Okay, so we'll continue with the story. Yeah, so – this, like I said, this moment in in the story is where everything kind of ramps up, and us going over it, I think, beat by beat, isn't going to do justice to the tension that's rising throughout the scene. Okay, so let's kind of go kind of a little bit quickly. Take the lead then, just for this part. I'll follow your lead. Okay. Just for this part. So, Paul shows up as well at the door when Peter's trying to get the second set of four. He comes in, the dog's barking like mad. She puts the dog outside. Paul sees the clubs and go, these are amazing. He asks if he can try them out. And she is like, what, what the fuck ever? Just get out of my hair is basically her. She's on. She's really frustrated with these people right now. Peter, you'll notice no longer has the four eggs, the additional four eggs, because with the dog barking and jumping, he knocked the eggs out of his hand. But they don't say that immediately. And Paul goes outside with the golf club, one golf club, and the ball. Meanwhile, Peter's trying to get her to give him the last four eggs. This is when Fred shows up and Georgie, and she's like, you you guys need to leave. Peter and Paul are both in the house now. Paul's come back from trying out the golf club. And... George Sr. is like, what's going on here? And she says, I don't want to have to explain myself. I want them gone. Please get them out of here. And he's trying to act like mediator. He says as much. And he tells the boys, unless you tell me what's going on specifically, I can't act as mediator. And she's like, I'm done. And she leaves. And if it's just about some eggs, why are you so angry? Look, I'm not going to justify myself in front I asked you to throw them out. Maybe I have my reasons. Do what you want. I've had enough. Anne. Can you imagine what I would do? Oh, you would kill me. (laughs) Like, I'm sorry, George Sr. Your job right now is to not ask questions. Mm -hmm. It's to be on your wife's side. Mm -hmm. And when she wants these boys to leave, politely... Ask them to leave. Mm-hmm. Eventually. I don't care what's happening. If I tell you I want these people out of my house. 
You better get him out of my yes. fucking house. <laughs> so Paul remains perfectly calm. I don't know what's going on. We were just asking for eggs. My clumsy friend, he dropped them. So we just wanted four more. You would have four left, but then your dog attacked him and he dropped those four eggs. And now he needs four more. And your wife said you were going shopping on Monday anyway, basically insinuating that you're being rude if you don't give us all 12 of your eggs. It's a test of their politeness. Mm -hmm. That's what this egg scenario is. And they gave them all 12 of their eggs. And he's just trying to get them no, to leave. He, the George Sr. Uh -huh. has the last four eggs. Oh, he yeah. And he's not going to hand them over. That's right. He, he's like, can you guys just leave? Like, my, my, my wife's clearly upset. And they're like, give us the eggs and we will. And he's like, excuse me? And this is when he finally does it. And it's just like, it, yeah, way to go, George Sr. Maybe you should have listened to your fucking wife. Yes. So... Paul pushes the matter more and more until George feels insulted and they're, they're refusing to leave and he slaps him. Please. Uh, what? Just give them to him. What the hell is going what on is here? What's going on, sir? The, he asked for the eggs. The dog attacked him. They broke. Now he would like some more. What is so difficult to understand? You better watch your tongue, young man. You better be careful old man or I'll break your eggs <laughs> well Paul thinks that this is just beyond the pale and so rude that he attacks him with the golf club and hits him really hard in his knee mm -hmm. ba breaking his he broke his knee and eventually there's a lot of blood so obviously it's like super serious and this is when things go from really weird and aggressively polite to violence has now happened mm -hmm. and it's not going to stop for the rest of the movie. Yeah. And uh, he's like, you know, well, why don't you just make us leave then? If you want us to leave so bad, why don't, why don't you call the police? And she yeah. explains he pushed the phone into the water. Yeah. And, and now, now, there, now the man is out of commission. So yeah. there's no way to get rid of these people now. Right. And the point is, at this point, it's it's revealed, basically, it's not stated outright, but it's revealed that this is all intentional. And this is where they wanted it to go. And they planned for this to happen. Before, this rationalization and politeness factor that people have in their day-to-day -day lives and in their interactions and they're trying to make things normal and not weird could explain – each thing, like if you start from the beginning asking for four eggs and then end up at the end breaking his knee, it's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But each step of the way, things escalate just a little bit more and every little bit you can rationalize individually. But to see the big picture, it's obvious now this isn't just an escalation of events. This is where they planned for this to go. Mm-hmm. So uh, then he says, let's play another game, a guessing game. What is this? And he puts up a golf ball. And the other guy says, it's a golf ball. And he goes, correct. Why is that important? And he says, oh, it's because you didn't hit the golf ball. And this is when they realize you killed our dog. And so the wife is like, where is it? And so they go out to play a game of hot and cold. And while she's looking, Paul turns to... The camera, directly to the camera, uh, and 
in the Austrian version winks and in the American version gives a subtle smile. Mm -hmm. And then they find the dog and the dog falls out of the car. Mm -hmm. During this time, uh, the other one who's watching the dad and the son, he asks the son to bring him some food and he tells the son, don't bother picking up a knife. Oh, if that was my child, they would know. They would know. I would prepare my kids for something like this. I'd be like, you get a weapon the second you can. Yeah. The second you are out of their sight, you grab whatever weapon you can. We hear a reference to a knife. Yes. Chekhov's knife. Yes. We saw in the boat. It fell into the boat. That's going to come up later. Like, you know, Chekhov's gun. If you show a gun in the first act, it needs to go off by the third. Mm Mm-hmm. So then, while they are out there, uh, the wife and Paul, they uh, get stopped by a family, just like what happened earlier. When they stop to talk to the family that's next door, now they're getting stopped by a family that lives across the lake. Yeah. And, oh, God, this just drives me insane. Like, at this point, I would assume you're going to kill us. We've seen your faces. You're not going to let us live You, this is your one chance. Jump on that boat. Tell them, don't come over here. Call the police. Yeah. Who cares if he kills you now? This is the only way. Like, at this point, how do you not see the connection? How do you not see that you stopped and talked to the family next door, and that's how they learned about you? How do you not see that this family is about to have the same thing happen to them? Because you're watching a movie. They're experiencing only what they experience. She saw Fred once and was like, who were those two people? And that's it. No, they came over to help launch the boat. Yeah, and she was just, hey, Fred, what's up? And then that's it. She didn't get any weirdness out of it. She has no idea, and she's not even thinking about Fred. Fred's not on her mind at all. But you're right. It could have, something could have happened, but she's also a mother, and there is a violent man in the house with her son. And if she does whatever needs to be done and maybe dies in the process, which in Kelsey's viewpoint, at least she would have died fighting. Mm -hmm. She needs to stay alive in order to protect her son. Now, is that reasonable? Is it likely she's going to save her son? No. But that's the motherly instinct or the parental instinct to protect your offspring, even if it's unreasonable. Do whatever it takes to protect your offspring. We don't have kids. <laughs> okay, um, so back to the house. Through their tears, the father, George, asks them, why are you doing this? And I'd like to point out this is right after Paul introduces himself as Paul and Peter. And then two seconds later, he says, Jerry, come over here. Yes. So it's just like instantly you know you can't trust anything they say. This is, this is I mean... <laughs> For a reference to modern movies, this is the Joker in The Dark Knight telling different stories to different people, but the audience gets the picture that none of the stories are true and it doesn't matter what the truth is. And the family figures that out, that, Yeah, but we get that condensed to one audience here mm-hmm. where Paul talks about Peter and about how his parents divorced and now he fucks his mom and like there's all this stuff. At one point he was a gay criminal. At one point they're drug addicts. Yes. And it's it's all over the place. And uh, George gets the hint like, okay, okay, I'll stop asking. Now, knowing that 
Haneke doesn't give a shit about his characters in this film is a real big bummer because I am one of those people. I gotta know everything, right? Just like when we watch Black Christmas, I develop a backstory. Right. We love, we love, 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 love Black Christmas. But there's one thing Kelsey can't stand about Black Christmas. (laughs) And that's not knowing who the killer is and why he's doing what he's I doing. I love that about the movie. It was revolutionary about the movie in a time when slashers weren't even really a thing. But, you know, murder mysteries were. But so I've got this whole idea of who these two characters are. And I would assume that being an actor, I mean, you always want to come up with who your character is. You want to have all the details in your mind so that it becomes a real person. So I would imagine that the actors came up with a background unless they're on board with what Michael Haneke says and just it doesn't matter. So who gives a fuck that this is just bullshit? I don't think they're method acting here. It's not method acting. Method acting is when you are when you right. are that person. Right, right, right. But, but like a real basic form of the method is to create a backstory that's not going to be on screen because you'll reveal it through your behavior. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in any case – They're super charming. It's really upsetting because, like, I, in my mind, have this whole idea of who these two people are. And then to find out that the director doesn't even care, like, it just, it makes me wonder why I care. Which I don't think you want from your audience. Well, because they're so charming. Like, there's this moment where Michael Pitt, in the new version, is like, they tell this whole story and he's like, you know, basically, what what do you want to hear? What would make you happy? Are you happy now or... You want another version? Like, there, there's no reason. We're not doing this for any reason, right? And then Tubby gets up, or Fatty, depending on the version that you're watching. Yeah. Did you find that weird? That they changed Fatty to Tubby? Yeah. In America? Like, we don't really say Tubby in America. We do. I mean, we say Well, both. I mean, it's a word, we, but- We say both. Fatty but like, is perfectly fine yeah. if you're going to make up a shitty nickname for calling somebody fat. Yeah. But yeah, Fatty would totally work. I don't know why they changed it. I would think Tubby would be the more European version because it's less common here. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. Peter then again, G- we have to remember that we're getting subtitles, which right. are Maybe never Tubby perfect. is his – Haneke's translation of the word they use in Austria in right. German. Mm-hmm. And whoever did the subtitles for the original version translated it differently. That's a very, very good point. That's likely what it is. Anyway. Peter gets up and goes to make himself a snack. Mm-hmm. And Paul, in, in this one, Michael Pitt, says, no, but really, he is a drug addict. That's like where he's going right now. I'm hungry. Let's see what there is. The truth is, he's a drug addict. That's where he's going to right now. That's why he's so nervous. I'm also a drug addict. We rob rich families in their charming vacation homes to support our habit. Mm-hmm. Oh, stop this bullshit. I get it. Isn't that enough? That's good. Hey, Tubby, he's got it. He gets it. That's awesome, really. Really. He is j- that moment, I think, epitomizes Michael Pitt's charm. And the charm that these characters are supposed to have. You really like the way they behave. 
and their idiosyncrasies. You don't like what they're doing. Yeah, it's it's very strange. And like I said, that he gets a lot of points from me for that. I'm like, yeah. how, how – because I, I hate home invasion movies. Yeah. I hate them. I, I think they're terrible. And that's this this is like a combination home invasion and torture porn. Yeah. And he grabbed my attention and kept it throughout the film. And even though, like I said, I despise what these characters are doing, they're fascinating to watch. And that's that takes a lot for me when it comes to this guy ship. People might say that strain the strangers is like this. Well, guess what? I hate that movie. I will not sit through it. <laughs> if you guys recommend me watch The Strangers, I will be so mad. And I will rip it apart the whole time. It's just so crazy to me that he got me intrigued. It might be because it's Michael Pitt, but I found the Austrian version just as intriguing. Yeah. It's it the way the whole feeling that this movie has is very much like like a revolutionary road where it feels like it was meant for the stage. And that's the way the actors are playing it. They are stage acting. And there's, there is also a certain charm about that. You know, it's, I don't know. So at this point, uh, this is when Paul makes the bet that they will be dead by nine o'clock in the morning. You bet. That you'll be alive tomorrow at 9 o'clock, and we bet that you'll be dead. Okay? And he asked the audience, depending on which version you like, who are you going to bet for or against? And in the American version, you're on their side, aren't you? Pretty sure he said... I mean, maybe he says both. That's just what I remember from the versions. Yeah, he he does. He asks, you're on their side, aren't you? They don't want to bet. Well, it's not an option. There has to be a bet. I mean, what do you think? You think they stand a chance? You're on their side, aren't you? Who are you betting on, hmm? Which, again, it's like, yeah, I am. So if Haneke was trying to point out that we're on the killer's side, he's wrong. And he knows that. No, I think he was trying to point out that they were on, that you're on the family side. But that's the... Is that the final girl syndrome? No, it's the, that's the... Like what they say in Cabin in the Woods... That we're on the, her side, but that we want to see them suffer. Yeah, just like yeah, yeah, the gods. yeah. That's exactly that. It's that. That's the paradox of the audience rooting for somebody and wanting somebody to succeed, while at the same time you came here, you watched this movie to see them suffer and potentially lose. That's the paradox of being the audience, and that's what Michael Haneke wants to show you, and that's all he's interested in. And see, right there, when you clarify it that way, that just makes it more clear to me why he's wrong about audiences. Oh, I think he's wrong. I think he's wrong. Um, I I think it's just such a cliche argument to be like, the media is violent and people lap it up. Like, yeah, it's sensationalism. We don't tune into things that are boring. And sensationalism is exciting. Oh my God, it's so profound. That's why I like the, I think this movie is so well acted in both versions. I think it's well written in both versions. I think it's well directed in both versions. I love the art direction. I like these movies. I do not like Michael Haneke. 
But what I was going to say is when I watch a haunting movie or I'm watching that to be scared. I want to be scared along with the people who are being haunted. Yeah. And when I watch slashers, I'm fully aware I'm watching a movie. Like there's no part of me that hopes this happens to real people. Yeah. I don't watch the news to watch um, and hear about these gory murders. I hate watching the news for that kind of shit because it, you know, it depresses me that we live in that kind of a state of, of life, of being. When I watch a slasher, it's more for fun because I know it's not real. Right. So he's wrong. Right. Well, the movie also, towards the end... And I mean, throughout, sprinkled throughout our moments of fourth wall breaking, right? And then there's one major moment of a fourth wall break. And then at the end, there's a conversation about what's really the difference between truth and fiction. Yeah, I, I want to talk about that conversation at length when we mm-hmm. get there. Okay. So then again, as Chris said, he keeps calling him fatty. And. It's then that they bring up the the wife and they're like, you know, she's beautiful. You think she would want anything to do with you? You're all fat and gross. And then he says, no, I bet she's fat too. And that's, of course, and she figures it out pretty quickly. They're clearly going to make me take my clothes off. So she gets up to walk away. But when she does that, they start to hurt her son, which is exactly what Chris was talking about earlier. The parental need to protect children. Yes. So she comes back. They put her son in a bag. So he won't have to watch it. Let's be polite. If we're going to do this, we don't have to expose the child to it. But it's also threatening his life. That's exactly it. And what's- it's, it, Again, it's the politeness masking what you're actually doing. Exactly. And it's really interesting because anytime there is violence, we don't see it. Right. There's one moment of violence that we see. Is that when he hits him with the golf ball? Golf club? No. Oh, because that the you don't you don't really see that either. Okay, but there's something about that which kind of extracts that from consideration, right? So while she's taking her time getting her clothes off, because of course she doesn't want to do it, we hear that Paul is doing something to the son, but we never see what he's doing, which I thought was odd. I mean, I'm fine with not seeing the violence. I'm happy. Well, I think to it's not. just a slight struggle thing going on. But the kid screams. Oh yeah, at one point. So like, what is he supposed to be doing to him? Oh, I thought he like poked him with something or something. That was that was my assumption. Anyway, so she does. At some point in all of this, too, the dad says, "Why don't you just kill us?" No, and- the wife does. Okay. One of them says, "Why don't you just kill us right away?" And Paul says, or Paul or Peter, one of them says, don't forget the entertainment value. We'd all be deprived of our pleasure in the 97 version. And in the 2007 version, he says, you shouldn't forget the importance of entertainment. Yes. Why don't you just kill us? (laughs) You shouldn't forget the importance of entertainment. Again, he's mocking you, audience. If you're like... If you're like, you know, yeah, just kill them. You're being torturous. You're This is unnecessary and it's cruel. And it's like, well, this is happening because you, the audience, you're asking for this. This is what you want. You should be ashamed. <laughs> In the struggle after she gets dressed, something happens. So the son is able to get away. Yes. 
And oh my God, when I saw this in theaters, I was so excited. I was like, yeah, buddy, because the kid gets away. Yeah, buddy. He, he runs to the neighbor's house. He discovers that the neighbors are dead. But then it's like all the wind gets taken out of his sails when he sees that they're dead. And he no longer has the will to fight. And not that he gives up. But he doesn't do much to try and get away. But really what takes it out of him is he finds a gun. And that's true. Right. And he's holding it up to the guy, to Paul. I don't and really understand what happened. It's just not loaded. And he knows that or or he's taking a big bet because it's entertainment or he knows he has control over the situation. That's another big theme in this movie is one of control. Mm hmm. Controlling the situation, people having control over themselves. That's part of what motivates rationalization, because if you can rationalize something, you control it. And you make it less of a risk, less of a threat to your sense of control if you can rationalize it. So in his control, he calmly walks up to him and he's like, yeah, cock it back. Go ahead. Now I pull the trigger and he pulls it and nothing goes off. And this kid is just like sobbing. And he takes the gun and he takes him back to the house. Mm -hmm. So then they get back there and they are putting bullets into the gun. One for Beavis, one for Butthead. Yep. And in the Austrian version, they do some very different uh, version of Eeny, Meeny, Miny, Mo. Yeah. I don't remember what it was. I didn't write it down because I didn't understand it. Uh, I mean, obviously, I could tell it's eeny, meeny, miny, Right, you just need to know they're doing eeny, meeny, miny, mo, and it's very convoluted, and they don't really tell you. The, they parse out the rules of the game that they're playing throughout the course of the game, and they introduce new rules the whole time, so they're not being fair, and that's not very polite. It's very rude to do when you're playing a game with people who don't know the rules. And basically what's happening is he does eeny, meeny, miny, mo. And then he asks the age of the person who ends up being picked, and then he counts out that age. And according to Paul, that person is safe. But it doesn't matter. The rules do not matter. Yeah. Because when Paul leaves to make his sandwich, there's a struggle that he hears. We follow Paul into the kitchen. He doesn't even seem upset about no. it. And then the gun goes off. Doesn't he? Does, doesn't and then even he continues him. making the sandwich. Yes. And then when he comes back, he sees the mess that has happened. And he kind of chastises Tubby. Yes. And what we see from a long shot, and you better enjoy this shot because this shot is a big one and it lasts for like 10 minutes. We see a wide shot of the room. The mom is tied up, kneeling down on the ground. The dad is nowhere to be seen. And the child is lying on the ground with his head blown off. Mm -hmm. You can't really see it, but there's obviously a big bloody mess near his head. There's blood all over the wall. There's blood on the TV, which is playing NASCAR. And Paul's like, son of a bitch, you killed the kid. Well, now they're just, they're, they're, you've taken all the fight out of them. Mm -hmm. There's nothing for them to defend anymore. This isn't going to be fun. <laughs> Come on, let's go. And they leave. You're an idiot, Tubby. When you're counting, you don't kill the person who's counted out. You kill the one left over. What's wrong with you? You try to run away. Guess so what? That's no reason to get trigger happy. Don't you have any sense of timing? What time is it? Almost 12. Shit! They're spent. 
Come on. Let's get out of here. Okay. Thanks to the driver. I'm gonna put it back in the bag, okay? Yes? Okay, thanks. And the next 10 minutes or so, I don't know, that's roughly, I don't know the exact count, we see this one long extended shot of the mother sobbing, getting up, going over to the TV, avoiding looking at or interacting with her son's dead body, kneeling down, trying to find a way to turn the TV back off. To shut up the sound and trying to get back up again, calling out to her husband, saying they're gone, get up, going to the kitchen to get a knife. And that is one long, excruciating cut. Mm -hmm. I think it's longer in the Austrian version than it is in the American version. Really? I thought it was longer in the American version. That's so funny. I think it focuses more on the father in the American version, and in the Austrian version, it's more well because the, the so in the American version, she comes back having cut herself free with a knife, and he's managed to pull himself up, and then he just breaks, and she's like comforting him as he's sobbing, but she has the bulk of this shot, but it's her like shoring up her emotions. And I could be totally wrong, but based solely on what I felt, it felt like in the Austrian version, we watched her just sitting there just in agony for a long time. Oh, yeah. The intro to that scene is a lot longer, I think, in the Austrian. We may be be completely wrong. It's just the way it felt. But that's what it felt like. Yeah. Was that we were watching her just in pure torture. So then there's a long protracted scene of getting him up, them both trying to get out. The dad saying, listen, I can't go anywhere. You'll be much faster without me. Get dressed. She puts on this overly large sweater that Kelsey noticed is would have been big on him. In the American version. Because Tim Roth is a tiny dude. <sighs> and when she's wearing this big oversized sweater, it's like. they stand right next right, to each other. And, and they're like, like the same height. <laughs> that would be the same enormous size on yes, him. Yes. Anyway, and then she's like, oh, the phone. Maybe we can dry the phone out. He suggests get the, getting the hair dryer. They go through that. And then he's like, listen, this is taking too long. I'll stay here and dry. And you go try to get help. Yes. So here is a big difference in the Austrian version. Remember, it was 97. Phones were very different. He kind of gets it to work, but it never really works. Whereas in the American version, cell phones were a lot more durable at that point, and he's actually able to call the police, which, by the way, is another big difference. Right, because (laughs) they don't know what the number for the police is in the Austrian version. (laughs) And in the American version, it's just call 911. Yeah. They don't have 911 in Austria, apparently. Yeah, there are countries, it's different for every country. Some it's 119, some it's 211, some it's 10111. Like, it's it's different in tons of different countries. But in any case, they can't get through. In both cases, they, they the call does connect, but the microphone's not working. And the person on the other end can't hear them or understand what's going on anyway. Or so I think the battery just dies. Well, the battery's dying this whole time. One. Yeah. And it comes up later. So she goes to leave and he spends his time 
He tries to eat, but he can't eat. He tries to take bread and he, he just can't. So he spits it out. He, he's drying the phone. He forces himself to get up after she closed the door to that room, the living room, and then throws up. He goes back into that room and then covers up their son and goes back to trying to do his thing. And she goes out. She makes it to the road. She uses clippers to clip through the fence, gets out onto the road, hides when she sees a car coming. When she sees it, somebody she might know, she waves it down and then another car comes and then it cuts and we're back to the dad and he's sitting in the room and then a golf ball lands on the ground and rolls into the doorway. Good morning, Captain. Good morning. Now, here is, in my opinion, the biggest plot hole of this movie. I say it's not a plot hole. If she had just stayed in the brush where they could not see her until she got to civilization, Mm -hmm. their plan would have failed. They would have been caught. They had to take a big, big risk that they would be able to find her again. They wouldn't have been caught. They wouldn't have been caught. Nobody knows who they are, and they never use their real names. They're in a foreign country. Nobody knows anybody. Oh, two young men. They're wearing white. Um, Peter, Paul, Tom, Jerry, Beavis, Butthead. In a country full of who? That description could fit anybody. And we have no idea if they even live in this country. They probably don't. This is a big vacation hotspot, and these are rich, bougie people. I'm telling you, they would have gotten away scot-free. They were careful to wear gloves. None of their DNA is anywhere. I I just feel like if she had gotten to civilization, I mean, she could have definitely told them, hey, these two guys are in this area. This is what they look like. They could have started looking for them immediately. And these two don't seem that concerned about it. No, so- they really don't. I think if they got caught... It wouldn't have been a thing. What's the term that they used for that kid who killed people while drunk driving? A couple of years ago, some lawyers coined a term. This kid who killed people while drunk driving, they were arguing, the lawyers were arguing that he was not responsible because he was raised as a rich kid. I remember that. With no consequences for his actions. I remember that. And they called this affluenza. <laughs> as if it's the disease of being affluent. Mm-hmm. And he's not responsible because he was never taught right from wrong. Because he was so rich and he had all the resources in the world, there were no consequences for anything. Please tell me that he didn't get off. Oh, no. He got two years. And then he was released. Two years. Yeah. Something like that. I don't know what happened after that. He got he got probation after two years. So they are inside the house and they uh, are going to do another game. But before they can, she goes for the gun. Yes, they do this whole prayer thing. And when she's kneeling down close to Paul, uh, she reaches for the gun and picks it up and kills Peter. And he hits her and says, fuck, where's the remote? Where's the remote? Where is it? And he's digging through the couch cushions like you would looking for a remote. Look out! (laughs) 
Where's the, where's the remote control? Where's the fucking remote control? And he finds a remote and he presses the button and the scene stops as if it's paused and then reverses. Until right before that moment, she goes for the gun and he grabs it first. You shouldn't have done that, Anne. You're not allowed to break the rules. I'm sorry. You failed. Now, again, when I was in the movie theater, I was like, oh, fuck yeah! Uh-huh. And then that happened, and I cannot express the anger that uh-huh. I felt the first time I saw this in theaters. So this goes back to the theme of control, that Paul has control at all times. And the one time he freaks out and loses it is when Peter, well, two times, is when Peter does, fucks the whole situation up. And he's like, ah, God damn it. And he gets frustrated because he can't control Peter in that moment. Uh, and it didn't go the way he wanted to. And then this time when he can't find the remote, it's all about control for him. And the blurry line between reality and fiction. Well, again, I think this just kind of, again, reinstates how wrong Haneke is. This is not reality. It's very clearly not reality. Yeah. But I think his point is, is that neither is any other movie you watch. So why is this any more or less real? But he's yelling at us for enjoying watching violence. Right. But what I'm what I'm saying is, did he go too far? By proving to you that this isn't real? Well, every other movie is fake, too. It's just as fake. So why is it that somebody using a remote control to turn back time like it's fucking click with Adam Sandler? Why is that any less real? They're both movies. They're both fake. They're both filmed in the same way with cameras. They're still projected on a screen. It's all fucking fake. How is this any different? Because we value the blurred line between reality and fiction that we get with movies that don't behave this way. After he makes her say the prayer, oh no, this is actually before that, the father says that's enough. And this is another time when Paul turns to the camera and he says, is it enough? Shkama, this is enough. Enough? You really think it's enough? What about you, Anne? Do you think it's enough? Or you want to keep playing? Don't answer let them do what they want. It'll be over faster. Oh, come on. Stop being such a coward. Do you think it's enough? I mean, you want a real ending, right? With plausible plot development? Don't you? No, we haven't reached feature length yet. Yeah. So again, blurring the lines. Uh, and the obsession with the entertainment value that this torture is supposed to provide. Yes. So eventually they kill the father. And then they take the mother on a boat trip because they're going to head over to the other family that they saw on the boat. And she goes for the knife and Paul simply takes it out of her hand and throws it in the water. Yep. You do not get the Chekhov's knife moment that you were waiting for. Ultimately, it was pointless. Yes. Oh, look. Another thing that's pointless in this movie. Yes. Then they, they throw her overboard. And he's like, hey, she had another hour left. 
And Paul's like, yeah, but I'm hungry. And then they laugh. Ciao, Bella. Why? The deadline was nine. She had almost another hour. Well, it's too difficult to say I like this. First of all. Second of all, I'm getting kind of hungry. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> and then they have their conversation about reality versus... Mm -hmm. While they're sailing to the dock of the other family that that docked at their dock earlier in the movie. When you overcome the gravitational forces, it turns out that one universe is real and the other one is fiction. How? How do I know? It's a kind of model projection in cyberspace. Okay, so where's your hero now? Is he in reality or is he in fiction? His family's in reality and he's in fiction. But isn't fiction real? Why? Well, you can see it in the movie, right? Of course. Well, and it's just as real as reality. Because you can see it too. Right? Bullshit. Why? But either way, he says, he shows up at their house and is like, oh. We're here for eggs. Anna and George, they need eggs. And he looks at the camera again. Uh-huh. When they when she lets him in, she goes off screen to get the eggs. And where he's standing, he's like a close-up. And he turns and he looks at the camera again. And he kind of gives a little half smile. And then time freezes. The metal song comes back on. And then I think the rest of the credits play over silence. Yeah. I'm not even going to bother looking at my notes because I think we got I think we got all the big differences already. Interestingly, at least in the Austrian version, I didn't catch if it was the same way in the American version. The credits are black on white. It's a white background with black text because it's different for difference's sake. But it's play, yeah, played over silence. So lightning round. Oh, in the American version, at the very end, he doesn't smile. Yeah, he doesn't smile at the camera ever in the American version. Just like in the, well, I mean, he has that kind of very weak smile when she's looking for the dog. In the Austrian version, he's like full on winking at the camera. Mm -hmm. Like literally winking at the camera. Why do you think he made that change? Part I don't know. of me wants to say it's, well, they're different people, so Michael Pitt just acted the way he would act. No, he would have been told exactly, exactly what to do. Exactly. And especially something as big as a wink. Maybe he thought, I don't know, it's too in your face. Well, I think then that that is a point that Michael Haneke is full of shit. If he's telling us, oh, it doesn't matter, the characters are bullshit. Yeah, he's making decisions like the decisions matter. Yeah, he's making decisions as if uh -huh. they matter. He made that choice. He made that difference. There's got to be a reason. So fuck you, Michael Haneke. You did too care about this. And I'm pretty fucking sure if you wanted to make it a second time that you care. You care a lot. So I don't believe, I don't buy it. Sounds like he wants people to think certain things about him that aren't true. Are you starting to join my side and say that he's a pretentious jackass? I still think he's a good filmmaker. I So do I. I think the film is very well made. There's one translation change in here that I think is really, really important. In a reference to the audience, when he takes out Anna's gag... He says, the dumb suffer in unspectacular fashion. We want to offer the audience something and show what we can do, right? And I was like, the dumb suffer in unspectacular fashion? What? Because I was thinking dumb, meaning idiotic. But in the American version, he says, it's boring when mutes suffer. 
And then I made the connection. Oh, he's ungagging her at that moment. Duh. He's talking about the dumb as in the mute. Oh, my God. A kid asked me something. I don't remember what. But I was like, well, usually when people are deaf, they're also dumb. And the kid looked at me like, oh, my God. That's really offensive. (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, no, honey, dumb means you can't talk. It means mute. And she was just like, oh. Why wouldn't you just say mute? (laughs) Uh, The production crew apparently built the house from the same blueprints as the one from the 97 version. So it would look exactly the same. You know, there are a bunch of little differences uh, in their lines, but I think that a lot of it is simply because it just doesn't translate correctly. We just have, we have very different. Yeah. Like I said, with the eeny, meeny, my mo thing. When I saw that, I was like, what? what? And then they they say eeny, meeny, miny, mo in the American version, because that's that's how we know it. That's so crazy to me that two countries can have the exact same idea. But they use different words for yeah, it. Yeah. Uh-huh. Do we want to talk about Leopold and Loeb? Yes. So Leopold and Loeb were probably the first instance of documented affluenza. Hmm. Apparently, I'm surprised they didn't call themselves Nathan and Richard in this movie. Nathan Frudenthal Leopold Jr. and Richard Albert Loeb are the basis for these two characters. These characters with affluenza. They were rich students, and they kidnapped a 14-year-old kid in the 20s and killed him in Chicago. And it was a huge deal. And apparently the reason they did it is because they thought themselves to be, like, intellectually superior to everybody and and that they could pull off the perfect crime. And that because they had the ability to do that, that there should be no consequences for their actions. They were just totally out of touch with reality because they were rich and bored. And that's really, ultimately, when they talk about why are you doing this? Oh, the druggie. Oh, his parents divorced. Oh, you know, yada, yada, yada. No, the real story is they're rich and they're bored. Which he does say at one point. He says he's a spoiled brat. But again, we can't trust anything they say. What would you like to hear? What would make you happy? None of what I said is true. You know that as well as I do. You think he's white trash? Come on, he's a spoiled little brat. He's jaded and disgusted by the emptiness of existence. It's hard. Really. And if you're thinking, hmm, two kids try to pull off a murder without getting caught. Yeah, does that sound familiar? Yeah, Michael Pitt was in another movie with Sandra Bullock called Murder by Numbers. And Ryan... Gosling. Ryan Gosling. A very young Ryan Gosling. Yeah, they were both very young. It was from 2002. A beautiful Michael Pitt. A beautiful Ryan Gosling. Yes. (laughs) And a beautiful Sandra Bullock. Two gorgeous men on screen at the same time. (sighs) Yeah, I mean, theoretically, we could have done these two movies together, but obviously, we this recording so far is almost an hour and a half long, mm-hmm. and it's just talking about one movie performed twice, and it is remarkable in how it is almost an exact replica of the original, like it really, really is. He decided that he wanted to make the movie again, only this time, everything is exactly the same. <laughs> That's it for me. Okay. 
what do you think the movie got on Rotten Tomatoes? Either you can, I want two numbers, 97 and 2007. I am going to guess that the Austrian version has a 66%. That is exactly right. Holy shit. Violent images and blunt audience provocation make up this nihilistic experiment from one of cinema's more difficult filmmakers. Metacritic of 69. What about 2007? 70? 51. Oh, shit. Though made with great skill, keep in mind, people, it's the same exact movie. (laughs) Though made with great skill, Funny Games is nevertheless a sadistic exercise in chastising the audience. Oh, hey, there it is. I don't read these before I actually copy them down. So that's exactly the same conclusion I came to, the Metacritic of 44. Am I surprised that people care about the original more than the American remake? Because people resent American remakes all the time. No, I also think they give a little bit more credit to foreign films because who are the people in 97 who actually reviewed this movie? (laughs) People who are probably more inclined to like foreign and challenging films. True. So I'm not surprised that it got better rated, but Haneke would probably prefer the rating that the American one got. He apparently told the producer that if the film was a success it would be because audiences had misunderstood the meaning behind it. He doesn't want you to like this movie. So almost in a way, me not analyzing it and me not liking that he made it, even though I, I like the, the, what the film is composed of, I'm kind of playing right into his hand in a way, I guess you could say. But what would you give it, Kelsey? I want you to give us a, a number to each of them. Are you doing this because you know I'll give the fucking foreign movie a higher score because you know that I think that originals are always better than remakes? I'm not, but now that you mention it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're wrong because the American version has Michael Pitt. So there. I would say as charming (laughs) as the dude in the 97 version is, Arno Frisch. I would say Michael Pitt is top fucking form in this movie. Yeah, he does a great job. But again, that's really difficult to analyze as well because it's very difficult to pay attention to uh, the acting chops when, A, you don't speak the language, so you don't know their nuances. You don't know how they pronounce things. Right. You know, like, it's different. It's very different. You go from one side of our country, America, to the other side, and it's there as well. Honestly, that's why I think people give foreign films a pass, even if they're not already predisposed to like foreign films. I think they give foreign films a real big pass and why they prefer subs over dubs because they wouldn't know a bad performance if they saw it. Yeah. Because they have no idea what inflection is appropriate for the exactly. words being said because they don't know the language. Exactly. I 100% agree with you. There's that. And then also, I'm reading the subtitles. I have to. So I miss a lot of the performance. Yeah. So I can't really put Michael Pitt up against the guy who played him in the Arno original. Frisch. It's not fair to him. Yeah. Because I can pay attention completely to Michael Pitt's performance. But that smile he has is very similar to Michael Pitt's, I would say. I think 
No, the guy we've talked. We just talked about this. The guy in the Austrian version always has a much bigger smile than Michael Pitt does. No, Michael Pitt smiles when he's not talking to the audience. When he's talking to the family, he smiles a bunch. I also felt though that Michael Pitt did it more mockingly than the one in the. Uh, is that a, is that a better thing or a worse thing? It's a good question. I feel like there's more malice within Michael Pitt's performance, but again, that's not really fair. It's really not. Because I can't tell you if the other guy had that much malice. From my perspective, it didn't. All right, we're going to run around in circles. How about you tell me what you thought? All right. 97 version first. Austrian. I'm going to give it a 68. All right. I was going to give it a 60. Why? What do you think makes yours lower than mine? My resentment for the context. It makes it difficult to enjoy. Uh, and, and I'm exhausted at the end of it. I see that this is absolutely, like I've said repeatedly, a, a it's a quality film. It's very well made. But it doesn't mean I want to watch it. I will give the American version a 70. I will give the American version a 60 as well. I think they both have things that are charming about them. I know I've said charming a lot, but this movie gets by on its charm. Very much so. These characters would be nothing if it wasn't for their charm. You know what the characters in Strangers don't have? Charm. They don't have characterization. Right. Which, like I said, that's part of the reason that I love them in this one. And it's also part of the reason why it makes me hate it more. The idea that Haneke's like, oh, who cares about the characters? Yeah. I fucking do. Well, he didn't say specifically who cares about the characters. He just said, if if you like the movie, you don't understand the movie, and that it's a pointless film. I can I can totally agree with that. But that does not mean that it is not a well-made movie, and that it's interesting at the very least. And also, he picked Michael Pitt. Yeah, so that's extra points. So this is going to be where the quote I said earlier comes into play. Filmslie.com says about the film, This clever self-contradiction and ambiguity is characteristic of Haneke's works and consistent with the postmodern artistic trend of ambivalence and denial of the possibility of a one-sided truth or an answer. Like, how fucking up your own ass do you have to be, person on Filmslie.com? To uh, God, postmodern artistic trend of ambivalence. Just fucking. I mean, he's right. The director once said, <laughs> the minute something can be described with a single term, it's dead artistically. And yet he doesn't want us to analyze his movie. Yeah. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't want you to like it. He doesn't want you to watch it. He wants to be right about you, the audience. And if you do all these things, he doesn't like you. I don't mind. This is the thing. It's it's ambitious what he's doing. I don't mind someone with ambition. My problem with Haneke is that he isn't doing this out of ambition. He's doing it because, do you know what I'm going to say? He's doing it out of disdain. In, in the last episode we did, Kelsey sarcastically said that Rob Zombie is laughing at us. I think literally, Haneke isn't laughing. He hates you. Also, in 
films lie. According to Paul, if our senses are the only connection to the outside world, and if both fiction and reality can be seen, how can one distinguish between them? This is a this is a perfectly fine thought experiment and a perfectly reasonable basis That's to like. That's basically the conversation they have at yes, the end of the movie. Exactly. It's a perfectly fine basis for a movie, but as a basis of judgment to judge somebody as a manifesto, which is what it is for Haneke. He made two. He made the same movie twice just to make this point. It's pretentious as fuck. Oh, I can see that there's no difference between fiction and reality. This is the kind of shit that you talk about in Philosophy 101 and then to stand there and judge other people because you realize this and they don't is the most pretentious fucking bullshit thing. And it's one of the reasons I fucking hate Haneke. Let's talk about that for just a second. Okay. What is the point of their conversation at the end of the film? Just to share that thesis with you because he can't work it naturally into the film. They have to have a conversation about some fake story about characters who don't exist. But he's going to make a movie he's, about He's them. making a TV show called whatever the character's name is, Game. <laughs> I can't remember what the character's name was. But the point is there's no difference between fiction and reality. That's the point. Yeah, is that you, you see something up on the screen and you call it fiction or you read something in a book or whatever, but you're perceiving it in the only way you have to perceive reality. So what's the difference? That's bullshit. I agree. That's much bullshit. It's, it's It's a fine thought experiment and a fine thing to dissect in a movie. I get that. But that's not what he's doing. He's using it as fuel to judge the audience. And and he can't even work it into the movie. It's just a conversation the two characters have that's a non sequitur to the rest of the fucking movie. As a final thought, I feel like I should be honest with our listeners. Part of the reason why I think I like this movie so much is because it got me to uh, go to uh, the Sundance Film Festival. Oh, yeah. The American version was the first time a Haneke film was not debuted at Cannes. Hmm. Well, I was obsessed with Michael Pitt at the time. Uh Uh-huh. Found out he's going to be in this movie. Found out it's going to be at the Sundance Film Festival. My friend was living in Utah at the time, and I said, time to take a trip. (laughs) And it was one of the best experiences ever. Listeners, if you ever get a chance to go to Sundance Film Festival, go. It's an incredible experience. Yeah, I've never been. We'll go eventually, maybe. This is my last thought. And kind of an explanation as to why I decided I wasn't going to dive deep into analysis on this movie. I wrote this down. I'm just exhausted thinking about these movies. Not because they're deep, but because they hate themselves. Anything you don't like can just be chalked up as effective commentary on a broken society. Oh, did that part suck? Well, that's because American consumerism and thirst for violence in media sucks. Oh, now it's successful then, and you should like it. And if you do, it's because you don't get it. If you don't, it's because you don't get it. Wait, it just goes round and around and around. We'd be here all day doing this. And for what? Just to say bad people are bad, violent consumerism is bad, detachment is bad? Deep thoughts, Jack Handy. (laughs) No shit. You are not (laughs) profound, Michael Haneke. Make a good movie, 
fine. And I'm not telling you as an artist to shut up and don't share your views. I absolutely don't think that. I just think, Michael Haneke, your views are pretentious and idiotic. And that's why I can't rate this movie over a 60. All right, that was Funny Games, 1997 and 2007. Kelsey, what are we watching next week? Next week is partly a uh, recommendation. Chickapedia asked us to do It Follows. Now, It Follows was definitely on our list. It yeah. was just it just kept getting pushed down and down. We're now. very big fans of It Follows. We saw it like when it debuted in this small theater in the middle of fucking nowhere because <laughs> the movie was not playing anywhere. But Kelsey's like, hey, I heard about this movie. You want to come? Let's go. Let's go watch it. And we saw it and we f- fucking loved it. Yes. And so she she recommended that we watch that. And I was like, okay, what can I pair it with? And then I had the brilliant idea. So proud of herself. <laughs> of Friday the 13th Part 2. Because we already did a Halloween sequel, so it's time to start getting the sequels done as well. Uh-huh. And f- what does Jason do? He follows after people who have sex, and he murders them, and he walks slowly. Yep. Is That's the exactly plot of it follows. It follows <laughs> so we are going to be watching that. So... We already did um, Friday the 13th. If you would like to listen to that episode to be prepared for what happened in the last one, listen to our fifth episode. Fifth episode, huh? It was like a year ago. Mm -hmm. Wow. Same with Halloween. All right, cool. Yeah, go ahead and go back. I wonder what we sound like in our fifth episode. Well, we actually genuinely watched it on Friday the 13th. That's why we did it. All right. That is next week, Friday the 13th, part two, and it follows two movies about a killer stalking slowly towards you because you had sex. Mm-hmm. Until then, you can always reach us at podcemetery.com. Please visit us there. You can browse every one of our episodes. You can get a list and alphabetical order of every movie we've done so far, over 100. You just find a movie that you like and listen to that episode. That's the easiest way to get caught up. You can leave a comment there. Recommend one or two movies for us to cover in a future episode. You can also do that via email at podcemetery at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at podcemetery. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe in your podcatcher of choice, please. That is very important, especially if you give us five stars and leave a comment. That's super helpful. So please do that if you haven't already. Share us with your friends because that's super important. But the most important thing you can do is listen in the first place, guys. Thank you. So, so much for being here, especially you people that stick around to the end and listen to all this housekeeping stuff. You get to hear sometimes there's a special song. We do a unique sign off every episode and we have some outtakes from the edit that go at the end. If you don't stick around to the end of the song, uh, you're missing out on all of those, too. So thank you very, very much, guys. We love and appreciate you. Until next week, I've been Chris. I've been Kelsey. And this has been Pod Cemetery. Any last words, Kelsey? Whether by knife or whether by gun, losing your life can sometimes be fun. to the sacred place to see the dream
Kelsey. Yes. I grabbed the wrong card. Oh, shit. It fell. Okay. <laughs>